0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the fifth episode of season two of North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Broll. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coast, and inland seas at coastalnewstoday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, Please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is Tales from the Seaway with Craig Middlebrook. So, lucky for us, we are joined by my friend and colleague, Mr. Craig Middlebrook, who spent the last 27 years as the Deputy Administrator with the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation. So, Craig, thank you for interrupting your well-deserved retirement to join us today.
1: It's my pleasure, Helen. Really honored to be here with you and Tyler. Thank
0: you. Thank you. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler, what's going on?
2: Hey, Helen. Well, it's a beautiful day here in Southern California. How are you doing?
0: Well, it's a beautiful day here in um, uh, North Jersey and I think in Washington, D.C., where I go back and forth. It's been a beautiful fall, uh, crisp and cold, but sunny for the most part, so pretty grateful. And um, we did not get that big snowfall, that kind of, that snow band that went up through Buffalo, um, last week. So, um, we're holding tight. It's quite beautiful. Looking forward to the holidays.
2: Me too. Me too.
0: Yeah. Thanks. So Tyler, our last episode was about harmful algal blooms in the Great Lakes. And it was with Dr. Sylvia Elena Newell, a professor of earth and environmental science at the Wright State University. Now, I went back to listen to the program and I can't believe how much information we packed into one hour. Tyler. I mean, we threw every sort of question at Dr. Newell. She answered every one and had plenty more to share. She was, uh, for someone who was pretty young, I thought she was incredibly accomplished as, uh, and, and of course, she also regularly visits the Bass Islands, where I'm from in Lake Erie, which I thought was also cool. But um, I'm thinking that my takeaway really from that conversation was to recognize how much research is going on for har- harmful algal blooms. And I kind of felt that there was hope for the Great Lakes, and particularly Lake Erie. What was your take on it?
2: That was my take exactly. I mean, I ca- I also re-listened to that episode. I shared it with uh, several of my friends who, by the way, got back to me and said how impressed they were with Dr. Ewell as well. I mean... Every question you asked, a sharp, knowledgeable, thorough answer. It's a great, great episode, ladies and gentlemen. If you have not listened to this one, it's a, it's definitely go back and listen to it. And I did come away with hope. Um, it's, it's, it's a hope because the science and the the quality of the work that she and her colleagues are doing is so impressive. Helen, every question you asked about, well, are you checking this out? Are you exploring this? She was like, absolutely. My colleagues over at this university are doing that. Or my friend up here up north is exploring this. I mean, and it is a totally cool frontier. I have to say, if you are a younger listener or someone who's trying to decide maybe where to go in your scientific study, I imagine that harmful algal blooms might be an interesting place.
0: Yeah, because there isn't a continent or country, I don't think, in the world that doesn't have some impact from from the algal blooms. Uh, and um, so, and of course, we talked about the Great Lakes in particular, and I'm from Lake Erie, which is, you know, a, an area of concern. So I thought it was great. Now, what what the listeners don't know is that at one point in the podcast, I had to stop and say... I've run out of questions. It was really embarrassing, but we were so fast and so furious and she just s- stopped me and said, well, you haven't asked this or this or this. And then, and then it got the juices rolling again and I went back and asked some other things. So I, I want to thank Dr. Newell for taking the time to be with us and being so uh, helpful and supportive of the conversation. So yeah, I hope people do go back and listen to it. I, I learned a, a lot, a lot.
2: Helen, can I share just a couple more things that I that I was left uh, pondering after listening to that episode that I would I would love to share with your listeners. Yeah. Uh, the first is, you know, as I as I kind of study the American shoreline more broadly outside of the Great Lakes region, there's a lot of energy right now. In no pun intended, there's a lot of energy in uh, kelp aquaculture and uh, algal the use of algae for perhaps energy production or carbon sequestration. And I've just got to wonder uh, what if, if there's a potential for this potential problem on the Great Lakes to be harnessed as part of a climate solution. And the other thing that I got thinking about is your excellent interview with the captain of the Thomas Jefferson uh, and the 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 mapping, the seabed mapping that they were doing in Lake Erie. And I just got to thinking about the modern science of deploying you know, all of these water quality sensors around the Great Lakes and how important those, that bathymetry, that, that survey data is to the models that will hopefully be predictive and help us understand when these events are going to happen so that perhaps we could take action. And so it's just interesting to see, Helen, how all of these different elements uh, kind of come together here in this science.
0: Yeah, and so it's so interesting that um, we talked at length about what is the nature of a harmful algal bloom. And what is the difference between that and like the kind of seaweed stuff or the grasses, cladophora, that, you know, I grew up with, which piled up on the beaches. And why is it different? And um, um, what types of har- blooms are there, algal blooms? And not all of them are toxic uh, and not all of them are toxic to humans as compared to animals. And so it's possible that some of them could be harnessed. Now the, the harmful algal blooms are, are a little bit different, but what I, was uh, fascinated about, is that because the type of nutrients and fertilizers that are being used now, after the Oklahoma um, bombing, where they changed the type of access to fertilizers, they just no longer wanted that fertilizer that had been made available and created the bombs that did that horrible damage in Oklahoma City um, to be available to the public. And because they changed that the new fertilizers exacerbate the whole algal bloom problem. I mean, I'm like, what? I mean, that was just to me like such a a, a far connection. You know, y- you you try to fix one thing, and then you have these Im- you know impacts down the road that you just don't even imp- uh, uh, think about. I thought that was fascinating.
2: I thought so too, Helen. And it it reminds me of the interconnectedness of everything. I mean, that's like a heavy, you know, that's a very interesting agricultural decision that has impact environmentally and in the Great Lakes. And what I've got to say, and I'm planting the seed here publicly, but I would love to see a robots of the Great Lakes because I think, you know, knowing all the great universities and all the great research and uh, I I think there is an opportunity here for uh, particularly younger people looking at, you know, potentially technology. Is there a clean up tech? Is it in the ag space or is it on the lakes themselves? Are there little robots that swim around the the lakes and, and manage this problem or test the water. I, I would love to learn more about what the, what the visionaries there in the technology universe around the great lakes are cooking up.
0: Well, that that's so interesting. And, and maybe there are, and, um, But I've not seen sail drones like you see in the Arctic or – and that Noah's got out there. uh, Maybe we should get one in there. Maybe we should, except I don't know how far it would go before it runs into the other side and who turns it around. You would have to tack. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Or something is so funny. Um, But um, the robots. Well, you know what? That is something to look into. Also, I want to put a marker down myself to get back to the folks um, on the the NOAA research vessel Thomas Jefferson or circulatory survey folks, charting and mapping folks, um, because they discovered a lot of new shipwrecks now. Some of those shipwrecks just are probably yachts that went down or boats that went down, right? And they might have not have historical significance. And when they do find one of historical significance, they have to report it to the state first, and um, to protect them, of course. And then the state will determine to what extent they should remain protected and and researched. But I'm dying to get back and ask the the folks there at NOAA, like, come on, tell us what you really found. You know, what did you really say? And did in fact you find Nessie, the monster of Lake Erie. So so but but we got let's let's go back to them too. I think that would be fun to find out what they really found after all this time. Let's do it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Canadian St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation. The SLSMC recognize that customers depend on a safe reliable and cost-efficient system to transport their goods. Through innovation and technology, they constantly improve the efficiency to further strengthen the system's competitive position. The Seaway also recognizes the criticality working with industry partners and key stakeholders to create a green corridor and tackle the challenges of decarbonizing the shipping industry. To learn more about this extraordinary system, go to greatlakes-seaway.com. At the end of that last episode um, on harmful algal blooms, I noted that this month would be about the indigenous peoples of the Great Lakes. Well, we are postponing that episode until December, so we can learn about the Anishinaabe women and men who walk the perimeter of the Great Lakes to highlight that the waters are precious and sacred. So stay tuned, because I think that'll be also fascinating. But I'm no less excited that we have our guest today, Craig Middlebrook. As I said, he recently retired as the Deputy Administrator of the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation. And I want to recognize for our listeners that Craig is now a private citizen, and his views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of the Seaway Corporation or the U.S. Department of Transportation. And I also want to acknowledge for our listeners that I once worked at the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation many, many years ago, even before Craig joined the agency. However, because my career has spanned the Great Lakes, and the Department of Transportation, I still think of the folks at the agency as my family, including Craig. Craig, thank you again for joining the podcast. You just retired at the end of September, and how are you doing?
1: I'm doing just so well, uh, Helen. I'm loving uh, life in retirement, baking bread, walking my dog, and uh, watching my wife, who's a public health nurse, go off to work every morning.
0: Well, that sounds terrific. And I cannot wait to follow in your footsteps. We talked about that. And it's going to happen to me in the near future. So I'll be looking to you for advice to make sure that I don't waste away my the rest of my life. Um.
1: Hardly, Helen. And it's good, it's good to be with you. You and I have known each other uh, a long time. And it's been such a, a good friendship and a productive professional relationship as well. So thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Thank you. Now, I really want to give you a shout out, Craig, because in many respects, you were running the Seaway Corporation for a number of years since an administrator had not been named for a long, long time. I honestly, this is my take, but I honestly think that it meant that you did such a good job, number one and were so well-liked, number two, by by the administration and the bosses in charge, that there really was little motivation by the White House or DOT to even nominate an administrator. Now, that's my take on it, and I think it's true. But I I suspect you'd be pretty modest about about your accomplishments. But um, reading a bit about your background. Now, you were at the Interstate Commerce Commission before you went to the Seaway Corporation in 1995. But, Craig, I think you're a person of many layers. Where do you come from, and what was the path that got you to Washington, D.C.?
1: Good question, Helen. I often uh, think about that myself. Uh, At one level, I describe myself. I'm a a native son of New York. Um, I'm an adopted son of Chicago, Illinois, in the Midwest, and I've happened to live in Washington for the last 34 years. And I went to both undergraduate and law school out at Northwestern University in Chicago and in Evanston and when i graduated from law school in the late 80s i um i my thought was that uh, i was going to be an international finance and contracts lawyer and i actually went to go uh, work in london at an investment bank at a merchant bank and lo and behold i found out i hated banking and so it was back to square one and i got a so a job announcement At the Interstate Commerce Commission in Washington, D.C., wanted to come back to the East Coast for a while before I returned to the Midwest. I figured it'd be a good gig for a couple of years, and I was there for seven, and then in Washington uh, for twenty-seven additional years, and I'm still there. So, um, the way I got to the Seaway is through um, a the chairman, the chair of the ICC at the time, uh, great woman, Gail McDonald, and. I worked for Gail as her chief of staff at the Interstate Commerce Commission when she was the chair. and President Bill Clinton reappointed her to the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation and Gail asked me to come along, said it looked like a a fun little agency. It's over in Maritime, we've been working on surface transportation for the last number of years, particularly railroads, and I was ready for a new adventure and went with Gail. Gail stayed for about another year and a half before she went on to her next endeavor. But I stayed and became the old shoe. And I'm eternally grateful to Gail uh, for this opportunity that she gave me.
0: Did you even know what the Seaway Corporation was at that time?
1: To be quite frank, uh, I knew of it. I didn't really know what the heck it did. And a funny story when uh, working for Gail at the Interstate Commerce Commission, Gail McDonald, and we had a budget hearing up on the House side. One year, and the uh, agency in front of us on the docket—we got there early uh, to uh, be ready for when Gail was called to testify. And the agency ahead of us was this strange agency that neither of us had, had ever heard of before—the Saint Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation—and we were listening. And Gail just turned to me at one point, "Boy, what a—that sounds really interesting." I didn't really give it a second thought. And life's funny because a couple of years later, the folks that I was listening to testify would become my colleagues. Um, so that was uh, Gail. Uh, Gail followed up on that. I didn't really, and she did her research. She had had enough with railroads, and when the opportunity came, uh, the she uh, took the appointment over to to the SLSDC. So I came in as a transportation geek, but really more on the surface side, not really no experience on maritime. And boy, I didn't know what I was missing. And not only that, but that the fact that the the seaway, the SLSDC at the time it was called, focused on the Great Lakes, uh, which was an area I did know and did know fairly well. Um, that was just a, an added bonus. So uh, thank God I got involved with maritime transportation on the Great Lakes. Thanks to Gail. That's all I can say.
0: Yeah, it does get under your skin, no doubt about it. But I also um, appreciate your point of thinking you're going to do something, one profession and and you change. I thought I'd be a geologist and got out there in the field and said, you know, I don't think I'm that good at this. And when I discovered policy, it was like a light bulb turned on. And um, I'm so glad that you did make your way to the Seaway Corporation It's been fortunate for them and fortunate for the Great Lakes. Now, um, a a year ago on this podcast, we had um, an expert from the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation in Canada talk about the Welland Canal and its history. It was really fun and fascinating. And everybody got to really learn and understand how the Welland Canal lifts ships around Niagara Falls. But the Welland Canal is entirely in Canada. So the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation manages locks on the U.S. side, but i know it's much more than that right so what was the development corporation about originally and what is it about today
1: good question i think at its heart the the development corporation and i have to be careful because often i refer to it as the seaway there are two distinct entities that jointly binationally manage the seaway uh, as you reference the canadian st lawrence seaway management corporation on the canadian side and on the on the U.S. side, what is now called the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation. And if uh, your listeners remember anything about the Seaway, uh, they should remember that it's a binational waterway. And everything about the Seaway is done uh, in conjunction between the two countries, Canada and the United States. So first and foremost, operating the locks and channels, there are 15 overall. Uh, 13 Canadian, two US, and the US locks happen to be in the middle of the system. system begins at uh, St. Lambert Lock in Montreal and travels up the St. Lawrence River. There are seven locks in the river, five Canadian, two US. Uh, the two US locks, first lock you arrive at is Snell Lock and then Eisenhower Lock. Then you... Uh, You leave the St. Lawrence River uh, at its mouth at uh, Lake Ontario, traverse the eastern part of Lake Ontario, and then come down the Welland Canal. So together, and the Welland Canal is a series of eight locks, as you mentioned, fully in Canadian territory. The um, together the Welland Canal and what's called the Montreal to Lake Ontario section of the seaway, or uh, by its acronym MLO. Together they form the Saint Lawrence Seaway, and at its heart, it um, the two seaway corporations together as the the Seaway manage these fifteen locks and channels uh, together, fully in an integrated way, and I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. And that it's a a complete transportation sh- system operates twenty four seven, almost ten months out of the year, uh, from mid-March until the end of December, early January. And uh, the infrastructure is quite substantial. Uh, if the seaway is known for anything, it's probably known for its infrastructure and all the components and all the engineering that goes into that. But it's also much more than, than just um, the operating of the infrastructure of the 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 locks and and the associated uh, channels and and connecting channels. It's a regulatory agency, Uh, the USC way is. It uh, uh, issues jointly with Canada and enforces uh, regulations, uh, one of which happens to be Ballast Water Regulations, and I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, at some point today. It also is a um, uh, trade development uh, organization. It uh, promotes trade into and out of uh, the Great Lakes through the Seaway, maritime transportation, maritime trade uh, to the two eight great uh, two provinces, eight Great Lake states, U.S. states um, uh, in the, in the Great Lakes. So it's a very, very, very interesting little agency, government corporation, wholly owned go- government corporation, and the whole reason it exists is because of ge- the geography of the Seaway, uh, a vessel. Entering the seaway in Montreal, um, traversing up the river through Lake Ontario and then through the Welland Canal, crosses the international border 27 times. And because of that geographic fact, this constant um, going across the border, coming back across the border, it was determined by the two governments back in the 1950s when they had finally reached uh, an agreement to build jointly a binational seaway that uh, it really needed to be a civilian agency on the U.S. side that would uh, jointly manage with the Canadian civilian agency. You know, everywhere else in the country, in the United States, uh, the inland waterway system, the infrastructure is uh, maintained by the Corps of Engineers, the LOCs, and the navigation is controlled by the United States Coast Guard, both of whom, of course, are military organizations. And because of this geographic fact on the seaway, this fluid geography, this fluid border, if you will, no pun intended, uh, Canada had made it clear to the United States that for sovereignty reasons, it would not be acceptable for a U.S. military organization to operate, again, in conjunction with Canada, the U.S. locks or... um, navigation. So hence a brand new agency, the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation was formed, civilian agency, and given all these very interesting authorities, which I can talk about if you'd like uh, to help maintain the system.
0: Well, you know, you kind of took my next question, because the, to me, for those who think about locks and dams in the United States, they do think about the Army Corps of Engineers. And so if it were just a matter of operate building and operating two locks in the US side, yeah, you know, Army Corps of Engineers makes some sense, um, but it's it, it the foresight of the the managers who who thought this up and decided to put it together, and the partnership you know with an equal partner a counterpart in Canada um, is so interesting um, because because my perspective is that because the the Seaway Development Corporation in the U.S. side. Is a small focused agency. You know, you you it gives you that it, you can have the relationship you need to have. I'm guessing, right? And and allows you to manage the requirements of the system because it's obviously been incredibly successful, Craig. I mean, golly, um, do you do you think that when the developers of this and I, uh, President Eisenhower and the other folks who fought to make this happen on the U.S. side, um, do you think that? they would say today it's lived up to what they anticipated it would be. And I don't mean the system as a whole, that what they hoped that these management organizations, the development corporations that the, the two have, you know, fulfilled what they dreamt for it.
1: Um, absolutely. I, I I would. I mean, I've done a little bit of reading of this over the years, um, amateur historian. And again, the, 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 the history of the Seaway is just so, Interesting, not as well known, frankly, as it as it should be. But yes, absolutely. I think on not only organizationally, on how it has it being the the seaway and the and the, the two countries and the two um domestic entities that have come together to run it have figured out how to make this work, but also in its initial uh transportation uh, intent, which was First and foremost, to be a bulk commodity transportation route. Um, And in moving commodities, grain, iron ore, uh, coal, although much less of that now, liquid bulk and things like that. And it's done that par excellence uh, from the beginning. And I've often wondered more on the organizational side did the original founders of the C-Way, those in Congress, those in Parliament who drafted uh, the legislation which empowered the two organizations and gave them the authorities, they really know uh, that the way that they were structuring this would allow, uh, on the one hand, far-reaching authorities and also the discretion to those who were uh, leading the organizations that this would be a formula that would prove to be successful. And it's a, it's a very interesting time. I, I, I actually just came back from Duluth, uh, uh, the largest port on the Great Lakes, uh, either U.S. or Canadian, and uh, spoke at an event there, the Gales of November, which I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of, sponsored by the Lake Superior Marine um, Museum there in in Duluth and I spoke on this topic about why the the seaway has been successful as a, an example of international cooperation and I um I, I came up with uh, essentially four um uh reasons why uh, first is I have already mentioned the imperative of geography uh just crossing the border 27 times if you were to respect that geography very strictly uh, you would have not only a very inefficient system transferring back and forth to each country's authority on that vessel, but it it would also probably not be very safe. Um, and the second is a point that you touched on, a tangible and well-defined mission. Uh, it's about moving ships first and foremost, safely and efficiently through the system. And, uh, failure is uh, readily recognized uh, when you have a ship aground or the system is not functioning the lock isn't functioning uh, it all grinds to a halt the third is what i've touched on uh, clear and broad legal authorities and i can i'll talk about that maybe in a little bit but then the the fourth is the is the least tangible and it's this commitment among those who run the agencies uh to relationships uh, because it's it's so interesting on the one hand, um, you you have two separate entities governed by their uh, legal authorities within the boundaries of their own country. So of course, um, that boundary is fully respected by uh, each country's legal system. But yet you have a waterway that they're charged with managing that really doesn't respect that boundary, because <laughs> it's a unified waterway. So how do you crack that nut? And I think um one of the, the principal ways you do that is uh, developing those relationships with those that you're thrust in with to manage this joint waterway, um, to know that you can rely on them, uh, they can rely on you, uh, you will live up to your end of the bargain, uh, they'll live up to yours, and you'll share that joint strategic um, commitment to running the seaway as efficiently and as safely as possible.
0: You, you talk about the mutual trust, which is huge. Um, you know, my, as you know, my but my current job is to coordinate uh, the collaboration of over 25 federal agencies, federal agencies that have interests in maritime transportation. And you're asking them to think like as one kind of, and look at the big picture of their work and how it manages. But golly, it, what I do is kind of a micro- cosm of what you did with the Seaway and um, so I don't think it can be understated I mean I I've been working at my job 16 years to take these agents agencies right these are smaller entities you don't have interagency inter- tr- or international treaties to think about to to begin to trust each other and and think it sounds weird that they wouldn't trust each other sure generally they do but um, you know in the beginning um, you know individuals may, may look at each other differently. And so I don't think it's an easy feat. It's just consistency over time to get people to trust each other. But what do you think the secret is about that? Or, or what's your perspective um, on how you personally um, helped to promote or looked at that mutual trust um, of that shared experience of goals? How did you, how do you look at that yourself from your experience?
1: Yeah, um well let me say up front Helen, I've <laughs> I've always had a lot of admiration for your role uh, with the CMTs because that is not an easy uh task to herd all those different agencies together and and I would submit in in certain ways since they're all US uh agencies their legal authorities uh everybody knows between them um where your legal authority starts and where it ends, um, and in some ways, uh, that's, a, that's a more difficult situation to foster trust because you can rely so clearly on the language of your enabling statutes or whatever, because it's, it's clear this is this is what I can, this is what I may do and this is what you may do. Um, and if we have a disagreement, we'll just bump that up the chain and someone will decide this for us within the, the U.S. government. And I think uh, and that's that can be that can be difficult and cumbersome. Um, in the case of the Seaway way uh, you also have clearly defined legal authorities, but they they also end strictly end at the border. And neither side really can bump it up, except perhaps in the most extreme um, examples um which almost never occurs so you're you're forced to you share common goals and uh you're forced to work in collaboration with your international partner um to basically get them to do what you would hope they would do and and vice versa and there is no alternative if this makes any sense uh to um, to that level of partnership and compromise now, when I first got to the Seaway in in the mid nineties, the relationship between the the, the two seaway entities was really at its probably at its low at its low point uh for various reasons um, and uh, at the end of the day. Uh, From an operational standpoint, operational staff on each side of the border always has to interact with operational staff on the other side just to move the ship safely and efficiently, and that was occurring. But on just about any other topic beyond operations, there really was not um, uh, a strong working relationship or trust, for that matter, uh, between the, the heads of the agency and the senior staffs of the agencies on either side. And that was um, that was a difficult situation. Uh, really you couldn't do any kind of joint planning, any kind of strategic thinking uh, to the extent um, that it was needed and certainly what um, what we've grown accustomed to over the over the last couple of years uh, the last couple of decades, I should say and it's been an evolution over the last twenty plus years um, to to develop. That kind of trust so and I think one of the one of the key key moments where that happened was in the uh the early aughts um, and uh, at the time the the Corps of engineers uh, and the Seaway came into existence, so the u s seaway came into existence as part of the Corps of Engineers in the early nineteen fifties the the Seaway enabling statute was passed in nineteen fifty four and for the first couple, and it opened in nineteen fifty-nine. And for the first uh four years up until um a little before uh, late nineteen fifty-eight, uh it the St. Lorenzo Development Corporation was part of the Corps of Engineers, basically to build the infrastructure. And in the early aughts, um the um Ohio River Division of the uh, Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for the Great Lakes, um Based out of Cincinnati, um, determined they needed to do an um, an overarching strategic analysis of the not only the infrastructure of the Great Lakes maritime um, transportation route, but other aspects as well, including environmental, uh, included economic, interestingly, and the the Corps reached out to the to the U.S. Seaway at the time and said. Would you help us? You have uh, good relationships, or you have a relationship with Canada, and we really need to make this a joint, a joint effort uh, to do that. And we readily agreed. And this had been attempted in the mid '80s before, and uh, with no success. Uh, Canada basically said, "Thank you, but no, thank you. We're not going to participate on that." And this time around, um, we helped facilitate. Uh, discussions uh, with the Canadian Seaway and with the Canadian government uh, through Transport Canada. And the head of the Canadian Seaway at the time was a gentleman named uh, Guy Verano, who came out of the shipbuilding uh, industry. And the uh, Canadian Seaway was commercialized in the late 1990s. And uh, Guy realized that this was an opportunity to start bridging more strategic Alliances and relationships between the two seaways. And unlike uh, his predecessors, he uh, agreed to engage with the Corps and with us um, to undertake this very comprehensive and strategic analysis of his infrastructure as well as ours. And I think that really, really changed the whole uh, dynamic. And ultimately, what came out of that was a was a study called the Great Lakes Seaway Study. It was published in 2007, and it included seven different agencies on both sides of the border, both seaways, Corps of Engineers, Transport Canada, U.S. DOT, um, Fish and Wildlife was part of that, as was Fisheries and Oceans Canada. And it was a tremendous success, and you had U.S. Corps of Engineer Engineers engineers, uh, Analyzing the infrastructure on the Canadian side, using the same type of matrices, risk management matrices as they was using on the U.S. side, and ultimately uh, produced a report with recommendations for, if you want to preserve the integrity, the infrastructure integrity of the Seaway for the next 50 years, this is how you would prioritize that. And on both sides of the border, I think that analysis, that document, led to the age of infrastructure renewal that we've enjoyed for over the last 12 years. But to your point about governance, Guy, Guy Verno's reaching out uh, and allowing this type of more detailed, dare I say, intimate interaction, um, basically allowing uh, core engineers over onto Canadian soil to do that analysis, really started the uh, cycle of trust which grew into all kinds of strategic undertakings to great
0: effect. You were talking about times where the relationship was a little more strained, and I was there in the late 80s. I've almost kind of forgotten when I left and where I went to before I went to Chicago. And um, it was my perception that the way in which the U.S. Seaway had been run from, from its inception in many respects up until the 80s was very, very much as an operational organization, as did the Canadians. And then a gentleman by the name name of Jim Emery was appointed to the position of administrator when I was there and instituted this real um, outreach kind of a concept. We are going to promote the system. We're going to do trade missions. I, I, I did trade missions with them. And it was so interesting because my impression, now this is just my impression because it's not like someone you know, sat down with me to tell me this is how they felt. But working with at the staff level on the trade missions and the way in which the US kind of became this gregarious, you know, group of people who uh, it just w- was a, a, an anathema to the Canadian way of operating all those years. Um, because we're operators we don't you know we're not, we're not promotion organizations, we're operators um, and I think that that my perception was that there was a little distaste in their mouth from from that, and it was not an easy it was not a horrible relationship. they certainly tried to work together, but it was a change um and um and the Seaway, you know, I think the U.S. side kind of toned it maybe a little bit and understood how to do it better. And the Canadians side, especially the Canadian port folks said, well, you know, this is not a bad idea getting out there and promoting together and being a team. Um, and so maybe everything kind of came full center and it, it it made more sense. But that report in 2007 was a big deal.
1: You're absolutely right, Helen, and it gives so much credit to Mr. Emery because he did He's the one who created the the trade development program, and he had the port tour, the listening tours, as I as I understand it, which I think you were referring to, to um, uh, get out there, talk to your customers, talk to your major stakeholders, hear what they're saying, what are they looking uh, for the seaway, you know how the seaway could add value to what they do, and uh, clearly the the prevailing ethos at the time was I called it the field of dreams um ethos you know build it and they will come and i think the reaction to that um initially to that kind of uh, active engagement was what it, wait a minute the two governments built this built the seaway it's it, it works um the ships will come here we don't have to really do anything about it and um he really started that process of um starting to rethink that and and really you know one of my favorite sayings is Focus more on trend lines than data points, because um, I think that 's more uh, illuminating about what 's really happening and if there 's any trend line that I look back on my twenty seven years it 's this uh, closer it 's an evolution it 's of closer engagement and closer trust and I think um, uh, that really uh, kudos and thank you for for bringing up Mr. Emery because I think on the trade development side. That was the first major strategic initiative, if you will, over and above lock operations that started that trend towards um, closer joint strategic thinking uh, which led has led into so many other areas uh, uh certainly trade development uh, infrastructure environmental um, uh, relationship with uh uh, different stakeholders, including uh, indigenous uh, Akwesasne Mohawk, et cetera. So um, that uh, that trend line really has a start more uh, beginning in the 80s, as you say, but really, really took off in the mid aughts, I think, with the Great Lakes Seaway study.
0: If I may make the hard statement about the Seaway, that it's never going to get larger, right? You're the, the chances of, of expanding the size of each lock to accommodate larger, wider, deeper ships is likely not going to happen in our lifetime. I, it's, I don't even think it's a matter of money. I think it's a matter of just, you know, look, uh, just like it's it's just almost too much to to manage and still keep the system opening. It's not like I mean look how long it took to start building a a, a new 1000 foot lock up in the Sioux, right forever, right? And that seemed to be pretty clear why you needed one. So it's never going to get bigger. Um and so it's not going to compete in the Panamax size ships or or Larger. And um, it's never, it's likely never going to be a year round system such that those locks are operating year round um, to get the ships in and out. And primarily because the lakes freeze up. So it isn't realistic to let them in. They might get stuck in there, which has happened, right? When they don't get out uh, soon enough or they come in too early and they get stuck somewhere.
1: We came close in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, but
0: no, it's never happened. <laughs> Okay, oh, Well, that's, that's a whole other com- commentary on climate change, probably. But how do you make the seaweight compete? What are its advantages, and why is it likely it's not going to be? Well, and what are its potential to be a container system, not just a bulk and break bulk system?
1: Yeah, and uh, good questions. And you know, one of the criticisms. Uh, weighed against the seaway is that it has never lived up to its potential. And I mentioned earlier that uh, it initially was designed to move bulk commodities cheaply and efficiently. And um, uh, traditional traditional transits in that regard are uh, iron ore, um, steel products, usually in or around the system, and grain products out. In, uh, if you look back on the uh, on the history of the Seaway, it has lived up to that what it was designed to do in that sense. And what happened historically is that at the same time that the Seaway opened in the late 1950s, uh, in the early 1960s, the um, uh, the emergence of containerized traffic started. Uh, Malcolm uh, McLuhan, was that? Am I right there, Helen? I, I think I, it was uh, McLean mclean, yeah, um uh came up with the uh the idea to containerize cargo and <laughs> and yeah, and um how dare he and so I think uh
0: <laughs> I miss those people, cargo nets <laughs> uh,
1: looked at the explosion of container traffic and, uh certainly on coastal ports uh that did not occur on the great Lakes, and said, um while it's uh it's falling behind and i guess um i don't necessarily disagree that it didn't uh catch the uh the container wave uh certainly the the massive post panamax sized ships that we we see today um but the at its heart um the the fundamental value of the seaway is as intrinsic and as as present today as it was Over 60 years ago, and that is uh, to allow maritime traffic uh, into the manufacturing and agricultural heartland of North America. And what was true then is still true today is that maritime traffic, far and away, is the cheapest form of transportation. It's the safest form of transportation. Um, It's also Uh, has among the least environmental footprints of uh, transportation. And we can talk about ballast water in in a little bit. Um, But um, all those advantages that are associated with maritime transportation compared to um, uh, other surface transportation, rail or truck, um, is still true. And one of the fascinating things that we've seen over the last two and a half years with um, uh, the logistics challenges that the pandemic has brought on at the coastal ports is that the uh, Seaway, the Great Lakes Seaway system, also can move containers and has um, an economic value proposition for moving containers. It's not about quantity about the type of cargo and the cost of the cargo. And about um this would be 2014, so 8 years ago, Port of Cleveland under leadership of uh, port director Will Friedman um brought in um containerized service between the Port of Antwerp and um and Cleveland, a regularly scheduled once a month service uh, Operating with the Dutch carrier Splitov, uh, you know, on a on a schedule, um, in and out of the port of Cleveland, and they've made that uh, they've made that work. And during the pandemic uh, of the last couple of years, particularly with the the disruptions at the coastal ports, what we've seen in the Seaway is three um, PLs. Uh, Logistics professionals are finally um, looking at uh, ways to move containerized cargo in and out of the Great Lakes. Now, it's not in bulk. It's not um, types of cargoes that are moved in and out of L.A. Long Beach, but it's um, high value, time sensitive cargoes. that have to move by containers and need to be uh, somewhere in the strategic location of the of the United States or Canada on a schedule that they can verify and the seaway has worked for many many years to convince people of the advantages of using maritime transportation for high value cargoes for containers you know the we maintain a, a reliability rate of the the locks Close to a hundred percent, despite um, we count every every type of delay, even those that um, are not infrastructure related, and yet, um, basically, it's uh, just shy of a hundred percent reliability for when the seaway is open, and I think the the major disruptions that uh, occurred on the coastal ports finally opened uh, people's um, logistics folks eyes that you know what, it, maybe it's worth giving. Giving a try to this percentage of, um, or some of this cargo to see how it goes. And so, over the last two years, Splitoff has increased uh, the number of vessels that it's operated. And next year will be a very, very interesting year um, around the Great Lakes, particularly on the US side, because in addition to Cleveland, um, the Port of Duluth, as I mentioned, the largest port, now can. Um, they invested a lot in infrastructure and on working with uh, customs and border protection uh, to get all the regular uh, regulatory requirements in place. They're a full, fully operated, um, operative uh, container port. Uh, port of Monroe, uh, not one of the larger ports, but um, under Paul Lamar's leadership, one of the most dynamic, uh, has invested heavily, thanks to um, both federal and state, state of Michigan investments in infrastructure that can handle containers, and they're going to come online next year. Ports of Indiana is looking um, to do the same, as is at the eastern end of the system, the Port of Oswego in New York. So next year, there are going to be three fully operative container ports, um, Duluth, Cleveland, uh, and Monroe, with others to join, and the demand to move certain types of containerized cargo is there. Again, the seaway is never going to compete for um, what moves in and out of L.A. Long Beach or or Savannah, but it doesn't have to. All it needs is a certain percentage of uh, higher value, time-sensitive, containerized cargo to make a difference. And um, I think we're going to see that. You know, if I may, an analogy on that is cruise ships. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And, and, um, something that the 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 seaways have been working at for uh since the mid 90s um as i know you and your listeners know the the great lakes uh was the center of the cruise ship industry for uh decades uh happened to be the decades at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century and by the late 70s there really was no functioning cruise ship industry left on the, on the great lakes and in the mid-90s, the Hapag Lloyd brought in the Sea Columbus, um, a, uh, a cruise ship. That was a, uh, that was a nice cruise little
0: cruise ship. I, I was on it. It was yeah. very nice. Very nice.
1: Yeah. It's called the Hamburg now. Anyway, oh. <laughs> the last 25 years, um, a lot of work has gone in to uh, attract uh, international cruise ships back into the Great Lakes with all the advantages that the Great Lakes has to offer. and. This year, after many years of research and investment, uh, the Viking cruise lines came into the Great Lakes with the Octonus, uh vessel. They're bringing in the Polaris next year, as well as the Octanus and other cruise ships. So it's that industry is about to take off. Certain companies were willing to take risks to come in, uh, measured risks, and make the investments. And I'm sure it's going to pay off. And I think uh the same will hold true for a certain niche of the containerized market as well.
0: Well, that'll be fascinating. I mean, I, you, you can't help but think when there were 100 ships backed up out of L.A. Long Beach and 100 ships out of New York, New Jersey, and the same was going out in the southeast um, ports of the U.S. and saying, well, you know, the Great Lakes saying, well, we got, we got room, you know, we don't have lines. Come on in. So I'm really glad that people jumped on it. And I really admire the Port of Cleveland for leaning forward on that. Um, I, I think another thing that people forget about having these alternative modes of transportation for you know, say surface transportation. I, 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 as a sidebar, I will venture to say that when we would sit down at DOT and talk to the Federal Highways Administration and say, "But this is about surface transportation," and we would say, "So what do you think ships on the water are? are They're surface transportation." So, you know, let let's all talk in the same voice. But that's a sidebar. In, in any case, um, when um, when I was at the Port of Chicago and the Mississippi River was really high, which it has been lately. Um, All the ships were, you know, all those barges um, came in um, to Chicago and, and hours and hours of people moving that grain from barges into a ship that could go out to seaway. And so um, we've had a record high waters on the Mississippi river, Um, the ability to move stuff down river, which are usually bulk and break bulk products like grain. um, You need to have um, a St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, The railroads are talking about another strike to shut everything down. And the supply chain will be challenged by that. Um, Not everything on a rail car is going to go into a ship. But because there's some flexibility now in cargo management in the Great Lakes, many things can. And it's really important. And what people also forget is all of those different modes help keep them in check um, price-wise you know, when, when the, you know, everybody's watching the barge rates, everybody's watching the ship rates, everybody's watching the rail rates. Um, And the seaway is an important piece of that supply chain. Um, And I get frustrated when people who are new to supply chain conversations or maritime conversations say, well, we just need to make sure there's only a half a dozen ports in the country that can move cargo. And I find that just a shocking, short-sighted, um, appalling statement to make um, because the the level of risk and uh, vulnerability in the system goes up exponentially. So I'm way against that concept because I think um, in some respects, the Great Lakes is growing in its diversity, but it has been kind of a niche, um, you know, um, system. There are a lot of ports in the United States that aren't moving big a cont- lot of containers, but they're hugely important for the cargo that they do move and you can't just you can't just move everything willy-nilly around the country that that notion is like well we'll just we'll just move everything well that doesn't work in the supply chain it doesn't work for the companies that move things but that's my soapbox um
1: and there's not a capacity for that yeah. you know there's been it, it, people think you can just oh we can just move this off water and oh, we'll move it on geez. rail and truck and the capacity is just there it not isn't there,
0: there. And, no it's going to be
1: yeah and And if I may, you know, uh, Helen, I couldn't agree more. And if the pandemic has highlighted anything for us, um, it's the fragility of the logistics system that we have uh, built over the last 30 to 50 years, which really had one major criterion, and that was efficiency. And uh, it's turned out... um, Reducing the number of options, while that may increase efficiency, it creates a much more fragile system, and it doesn't um, doesn't take much pressure. Once real pressure is applied to a fragile system, start breaking it. And so, I think this, to, to your point, um, Amen. The, the need for transportation resiliency for multiple options is essential.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I uh, we don't have a lot left in the time, so I, I want to jump into invasive species a little bit. You mentioned it earlier. Seems like we
1: just got started. <laughs> I know.
0: Okay. I know. There's so <laughs> many things to talk about. We can always do a part two. Um, so uh, invasive species, gosh, you know, there was a time in my job that uh, all I did was think about invasive species and ballast water technologies, and because I was working in the Great Lakes stuff and, and um, all of the issues that came with um, invasive species um and and since ballast water technologies were slow to come into play and i'm not so sure they're there yet now ballast water exchange was the way it was handled particularly quickly for the great lakes because when you picked up water or picked up in species from a body of water that could be f- fairly fresh or or brackish let's say in the baltic or elsewhere and then you came into the great lakes which was fresh water they flourished and we certainly know about zebra mussels got it. Um, and then by asking ships to exchange their ballast water, um, where the invasive species lived, um, and, and did a saltwater wash basically to kill them off, that that was quite effective. Um, and then, but a lot of the, the, the pressure of making sure that those ships were complying with that was really with you guys and with Coast Guard. So, where does it stand today? Um, we don't hear about it much on the, the ship side. That doesn't mean it's gone away. Where is it with you guys right now?
1: Yeah, and I would um, I would submit part of the reason we don't hear a lot about it, thank, thank goodness, is that um, the regime, the regulatory regime, the enforcement regime that's been in place since the mid aughts um, has been very, very successful and you mentioned so it's um the great lakes has the strictest ballast water regulations of any any body of water any transportation route in the, in the world and you mentioned ballast water exchange which was a coast guard regulation which went into effect in the early 90s and what um the what had occurred in the 1970s particularly with the arrival of um a lot of uh, empty Eastern European, Russian ships coming into the Great Lakes to pick up grain. A ship coming in empty uh, has full ballast tanks for stability. And once they get to the the Great Lakes and they load grain, they discharge the ballast water out of their ballast tanks into the Great Lakes. And that's where um, a lot of the invasives, particularly zebra mussels, came from. In response to that, uh, in the early 90s, the Coast Guard passed several, um, pieces of legislation to require the ballast water exchange, as you mentioned. And that, that proved effective, but it then turned out, um, upon scientific analysis over the next, uh, 10, 10 years, not wholly effective because the nature of the economics of, uh, transporting uh, in maritime into into and out of the great lakes had had changed no longer were ships coming in with fully loaded ballast uh, tanks empty they were coming in either fully loaded due to the economics you just need to carry cargo to make this work or partially loaded and if you're partially loaded or even fully loaded you still have residual amounts of ballast water in your ballast tanks and so um uh transport canada the uh, canadian seaway and um uh, we uh looked at that situation looked at the science there was a, a very seminal paper uh written by Dr Dr Ruiz from the Smithsonian and um uh, the uh, Dr David Reed from the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab at NOAA which uh, identified this issue and identified a solution which was uh, called saltwater flushing the use of salt water to get uh, these remnant uh amounts of ballast water in, in tanks and what we called no ballast on, on board tanks, no Bob tanks. And we went, um, we at the Seaway, um, Canada passed legislation in 06 to require uh, saltwater flushing, um, uh, beyond the exclusive economic zone, 200 miles out before they came in. And, uh, we went to the Coast Guard to say, uh, you know, we can do this, we're a regulatory agency, uh, we can do this quickly. Um, again, among the amazing authorities that the Seaway the Corporation has, we can move a regulatory idea from concept to development, to public notice, to publication within half a year, which is unheard of for most other uh, executive branch agencies, and certainly the Coast Guard, which at the time had been working on uh, developing a ballast water uh, standard and testing standard for over 10 years. Coast Guard, to its credit, said, boy, if you can do that, go ahead and do it. And so we issued our regulation in 07, again, joint regulation in conjunction with Canada, which required all international vessels coming into the Great Lakes to um, either, they're certainly applicable to the Coast Guard regulation on ballast water exchange if you're coming in empty, or if you're coming in most of the vessels, either full or partially loaded, you would have to flush your tanks under seaway regulations Um, swish swish and spit, we called it, uh, saltwater flushing before you came in. We also coupled that with um, a very strict enforcement uh, component with our ship inspectors, Canadian and U.S. ship inspectors, where every ballast, uh, every international vessel and the ballast tank of every ship tested for salinity, uh, 30 parts per thousand seawater. And if it didn't meet that, if the salinity was less, and so therefore potential risk of... um, an invasive in the tank, uh, the the tank would be sealed. And then on the return journey back through the seaway, that tank would be uh, again measured for salinity. And if there was any discrepancy between the initial salinity rate and the subsequent, uh, the supposition would be that that tank was opened on its transit and the vessel would be fined. The, um, The compliance rate by industry over the last 14 16 years uh, has been just shy of 100% and um the effects of this uh uh ballast water regulation has created um the longest period of non-introduction of invasive species in the history of the seaway um there was a paper and a it, um it's it's very readable uh, and it was published um, in uh almost a year ago in december of 2021 by two of the foremost um ballast water scientists biologists um anthony Ricciardi and dr hugh mcisaac and it it's called vector control reduces the rate of species invasion in the world's largest freshwater ecosystem and they, uh, both scientists have been following this issue for over 20 years. They've been following, uh, the regulatory response to this, um, since, uh, 06 and 07, 08, since the introduction of the Seaway regulations and what they found, and I actually just have it in front of me and they quote in there, they say, to our knowledge, the 2006, 2008 regulations, the only case of a policy intervention that is linked to a massive reduction." Of the invasive rate of a large aquatic ecosystem. Since the current regulations were implemented, the overall uh, rate of discovery of new non-native species declined uh, compared to the partial regulation period. No other equivalent period of time in the documented history of the Great Lakes Basin since 1835 has had fewer invaders discovered In the period of 07 to 19 that's when their research completed and not since the second world war has there been as few ballast water invasions recorded over a 13-year period so um, i think part of the reason we don't hear much about this is that this is an example of um, a government policy initiative a regulatory uh, initiative um, that has been very very successful based on um, hard science and strong implementation um, uh, by the responsible agencies. So honestly, in in my time at the Seaway, this is one of the things I'm um, most proud to have worked on um, uh, at the Seaway.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. So really, Craig, reflecting on that 27 years with the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation, in addition to the ballast water regulation, and congratulations on that, I know it was a lot. I was there during all of that. It was a lot in any case what are what are a few other things that you're most proud of
1: um the uh the level of partnership with canada helen the um the uh spent a lot of time uh on that and um working with uh with my counterparts uh north of the border and i think uh as i mentioned when i came to the seaway in the late 90s mid 90s that relationship was strained. And dare I say, uh, at this point, it's never been more collaborative uh, or stronger. And to whatever extent I've had the, the ability to affect that, um, uh, I'm proud of that. Also, I would say, the I mentioned the Great Lakes Seaway study in um, uh, 2007. And since that time uh, we uh, at the USC way have been able to to double our our budget all of that going to that increase going to infrastructure investments and um, over the last uh twelve years we um we've invested uh almost two hundred million dollars in modernized or rehabilitated infrastructure, and Canada has invested almost eight hundred billion eight hundred million excuse me so overall. Both Seaways have invested almost a billion dollars in new infrastructure, and so the uh, Seaways in as good an infrastructure shape today um, and can hopefully last the next uh, 50 years. And I, I guess the one other thing is uh, improving the relationship with the um, Aquasasni Mohawk. Um, seaway does everything in a binational way. And the Akwesasne, uh territory, the St. Lawrence River splits the territory, and part of that resides in Canada, and part of that resides in the United States. And in the mid-aughts, the uh, aquasasne Mohawk sued both seaways uh, right around opening, um, and uh, the, uh, the that was sent to... Um, a joint uh settlement negotiation that lasted about 18 months to on the u.s side the magistrate said see if you can um, if you can reach this before this goes further and same on canada and so we all sat down and m- around the table all the different organizations there had to be 40 people around the table and we met for 18 months and were able to work out an agreement in the relationship with our aquasasni neighbors um, has improved dramatically, uh, since that time. And so again, for me, this, the great thing about the seaway is, and the Great Lakes, it's the only path to success is through collaboration. There are so many different entities. Uh, there's so many people who care so deeply about, uh, the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence river that nobody can go it alone. And the only way that you move forward is partnering. And, uh, I'm just very, very thankful that I've had that opportunity um, to work in that way. That's that's a, what a fulfilling career that's been.
0: Yeah, congratulations on an extraordinary career. I know that you'll be missed there. Um, Craig, really thank you so much for joining us on North Coast Chronicles. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I'm truly honored now to call you a friend. And I'm really grateful that you took time to join our modest little podcast on the Great Lakes. Uh, we are better for it. And I uh, sincerely hope we stay in touch and uh, maybe we have to have a part two.
1: <laughs> well, I am honored, um, Helen, to be asked to be part of this. And I just, I thank you and I thank Tyler for putting Great Lakes um, uh, prominently out there. What, um, what an amazing community, what an amazing resource. And the more that we all learn about it and the, the better. So thank you.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we honor the Mother Earth water walkers who walk 2,000 miles from Duluth, Minnesota to Montaigne, Quebec, to raise awareness of the importance of our Great Lakes water resource. Until then, Be good to one another.